WXOJLP Northampton. And coming to you from our beautiful penthouse studios, this is Care Talk with Quick and Quack. You're here with Drs. Evan Benjamin and Bill Cutler, where we talk about health and health care. All right, Bill. So we've got a great show set up today. Uh, what are we going to do today, Bill? Well, let me see if I can remember. I think that we're going to go back to talking about the history of the healthcare system. I think you're going to share quite a bit more information with us and bring us maybe bring us up closer to the present time to hear how we got into the system that we that we have. Um, and we've got some other stuff in store as well. I think we'll go and we'll each share a little bit more of our history of getting into healthcare and our thoughts about that. And uh, maybe we'll come up with a little story about somebody's challenges with the healthcare system. And uh, looking forward to it. We'll, we should have some fun. That's great, Bill. Looking forward to it. We'll have a good time today. Okay, so Evan, you were filling us in on some of the history of our healthcare system in this country. You took us through the uh, beginnings of the medical colleges in the 1700s, and then uh, some some licensing that was happening in the 1800s, and then the 1910 Flexner Report, which uh, uh, created some significant standards for healthcare, and then. Uh, the cost was going up with the restrictions and who could become a doctor, and uh, and then in the uh, uh, in the forties during World War II, there were restrict- restrictions on wage increases, and uh, employers started getting into the uh, the the business of, of of health insurance by providing health insurance for their employees. So let's let's pick up the story there. That's what, great. What, what, you know, Bill, I, I I teach this at UMass, the School of Public Health, and I would just say you just that was an excellent summary, and I would give you an A on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, so the in the 1940s, um, we started seeing the the really the big development of private employer based health insurance. Um, not a, a lot of other insurance. A lot of people were sort of left out of this, right? You, you got insurance because you worked and you had a job that offered that insurance. And so, you know, the the uh, poor, the unemployed, uh, and of course this is very close to after the Depression, uh, the elderly, the retired, uh, or people just in uh, jo- smaller jobs that didn't have insurance weren't getting it. And so there was, uh, now that it looked like health insurance was going to be a way to support the, the health system and, and allow people to get access to health, to physicians and hospitals, President Truman was actually the first one to say, you know, we should probably create some type of national government insurance program, you know, so that we, so everyone could could get covered and everyone could get uh, hospital and physician coverage. How, how'd that idea go over? Well... Bill, you and I are physicians. I know neither of us are members of the American Medical Association, uh, but the American Medical Association um, has been a very strong lobby. Even back then, uh, they pushed back significantly, thinking this was going to decrease their their income. And uh, the, of course, there were cries that this is sounds like today. This this is socialism, uh, communism. Of course, the Red Scare was was big. Uh, so even then, with uh, Harry Truman. Uh, 
proposing a national health insurance system, there was a, a significant pushback, and it never happened. It didn't happen. So, yeah, imagine that Congress didn't 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 get that done. As a <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and so it was Congress. It was the AMA. Uh, you know, and uh, so as a result, this model of you know employer-based health insurance continued. Uh, and it began to spread from large companies that were offering insurance to smaller and smaller. And pretty soon it was expected that uh, if you were employed someplace, you would have health benefits. And that was the, the, the model. Uh, and, you know, in the 1950s, we really saw the growth of this, you know, really a comprehensive employer-based insurance you know, and the model there is, you know, it's a third party, it's a private company that receives premiums, and they then pay the through a third party the uh, payments. Uh, and we saw really the growth of really large national health insurance companies. And so they became a dominant force. All right. So I, I just have a question. Here. I was sort of curious about this. So during this time, if you were, you know, if you had a job where you got health insurance, you were, you were on the, you were, you were in, you were, you know, you could get, you could get, get health care. And for those who didn't, um, I, I'm imagining, I, 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 and I, I may be wrong about this, but but wasn't there still quite a number of people who were getting health care of some sort or another without having health insurance? Exactly. Now, you know, think of it, in the 1950s, um, again, health care was a lot simpler. Um, you know, when you had a heart attack, you mostly got your hand held. You mostly got your hand held. You, if you were lucky, you would have a nurse who would help care for you. Uh, you were given, you know, three to four weeks of rest uh, if you survived. So we didn't do as much. So it was easier still to have, you know, a uh, an out of pocket uh, uh, model of healthcare where people, if they didn't have insurance, paid out of, out of pocket. Uh, there weren't a lot of MRIs, mm -hmm. CT scans, fancy laboratory tests. Uh, so, so, so I, actually, I guess a corollary of that is that for employers, giving their employees health health insurance, it, it was it wasn't that big a deal. It was it didn't was wasn't terribly expensive for them. That's right. It wasn't very expensive, and they, and also the kind of insurance they offered was pretty comprehensive. So you didn't have these co-pays and deductibles and didn't even pay that much in premium. Your employer took care of everything. Uh, but again, the benefits were less because of what we could offer. So this was the model, though, that was developing. These large insurance companies, you know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, uh, the, 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 the forerunners of Aetna and United Healthcare became big, big business. And so in the 1950s and then 60s, that was uh, that's where we were going. But pretty soon it became, you know, healthcare got expensive. Uh, the prices started rising and it, those who were um, poor and elderly, uh, unemployed, retired, they were really left out of the system. So and I think I, I think you're leading us towards maybe a discussion of, about Medicare coming coming online. And um, I think before we jump into that, we'll take we'll, let's take a little pause here. All right, let's do that.
That was Aretha Franklin. You're so swell when you're well. Okay, so Evan, getting back to the history of our healthcare system, you uh, brought us up through the very early years and then into the 20th century where we started having uh, health insurance paid for by employers. And we started in the 50s into the 60s, starting to getting some, some uh, increased technology, which was raising some of the prices. And there was concern, I think, about uh, all the people who were left out of that system. And if I'm not mistaken, particularly uh, the elderly. T t t tell us what, what happened next. Yeah, so great summary, Bill. So we're, we're seeing the rise of these insurance companies, uh, but they were very much supporting the employer-based model. If you had a job, you had health insurance. And the need for insurance became necessary. Uh, earlier in the 40s and 50s, healthcare was pretty simple. There was still a lot of out-of-pocket payments for those not in the system. But you know, by the early 60s, it was realizing that healthcare is very expensive, and those without insurance, without this employer-based insurance, were sort of left out of the system. So this was a miracle which happened, and it could never happen today. And that is President Johnson through sheer will. Uh, He's a pretty powerful guy. He was a powerful guy. He saw that we needed to do something about health care. He saw other countries uh, moving ahead with national health insurance systems. Uh, and he wasn't sure if he could overhaul the entire U.S. system, but he wanted to create a way to bring the elderly, the retired, the poor, the unemployed into health care. And in 1965, he was able to get Medicare and Medicaid created. And it was interesting, it was both Medicare and Medicaid. Uh -huh. um, Medicare for the elderly, people over 65, and Medicaid for the poor. Um, Medicare was always seen as uh, very successful. Uh, and there was support then, and there's been long-term support. Um, he sort of compromised on Medicaid. Uh, a lot of the states didn't want it, um, and they said they would only pass it, you know, their senators and congressmen, if they could control it. So while the money for Medicaid comes from the federal government, it was to be administered by the states. So, 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 so Medicare then was a fully nationalized program that right. uh, under total national federal control, and, and, and the compromise on Medicaid was that, that individual states would have more input into how that would be administered. That's right. The states would take the money. They could determine which of their citizens would get, receive Medicaid. So um, Medicare uh, launched as a, as a single payer. It was really a single payer national health insurance model for people over 65. But Medicaid stumbled. It, you know, it, has, it continued, but there was a lot of stigma associated with it then, and, and really that has continued as a result. And we'll talk about you know Medicaid more later, but it was still a miracle that in 1965, Medicare and Medicaid were created supporting a national health insurance model from a single payer uh, in this country. So to the extent that we have any sort of uh, um, approach toward universal coverage, in a sense, that, 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 that is really the, the root of it there. Yeah, and Johnson knew that, that this was just going to be the first step. Uh, he thought, gee, could we combine a private health insurance model with a public model and we would get most of our citizens insured? And it did take a huge step forward. 
But still, even then, from 1965 until uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, we still had about 20 to 25% of our country uninsured. So Johnson's Medicare and Medicaid took, it was a huge step forward, uh, but it, it was only thought to be a step in that we had to fill in later, and it took us a long time. So what happened though, during uh, the, so the 60, 65 was Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, during the 70s, uh, early 70s, uh, there was a lot of concern for the rest of the country, the uninsured who weren't in the, the employer-based private insurance, and they weren't getting Medicare or Medicaid. And uh, remember our Massachusetts Senator Kennedy yeah. uh, was a real proponent of healthcare, and he was really saying that we needed to create, you know, a we need to overhaul the system, a real revolution. His his thing was to create a single payer that uh, w would be the U.S. government. We essentially would eliminate private health insurance and move to a single payer model, uh, which would also be a, the public payer. Um, and at the same time, President Nixon, who we think of now as a very conservative uh, president, well, he had to counter Kennedy, and he proposed a model which was really to expand the private health insurance market and to actually shrink the public payer and make the private health insurance, though, accessible to everyone. In other words, he, they would have government subsidies, and everyone would enter into the, a private insurance and the government would give you a subsidy if you were poor, but he wanted to expand the private health insurance. But so, so that's so that's Nixon's plan. That, that actually sounds to me a little bit like Obamacare. Exactly, exactly. It really is Obamacare. Nixon's plan was to to get to universal health insurance, but to do it through a private mechanism. Now it's interesting. That's what Obamacare tried to do a little bit, but he, Nixon was looking at other countries and Germany. Switzerland, Japan, they had all moved to universal health insurance, but through a private health insurance market. Uh, these are not, you know, socialist countries. Uh, Switzerland's a very capitalist country, uh -huh. and they created a, a universal health insurance through a private health insurance market, and that's what Nixon wanted to do. Well, anyway, both well, of these plans did not get they, passed. They fizzled out. So this, this, so this must have been in the the early seventies, and uh, yes. and and. Uh, Nixon was gone from the political scene after a little while after that. Kennedy uh, was on in the Senate for, for a long time after that. And, uh, and I guess it was like just after he passed away is when the, the, the next step was taken in terms of uh, uh, increasing health care coverage. That's right. And so what, what led up to that is, you know, the country had other things to do in the 70s. We saw the war going on in Vietnam. Uh, other priorities, and so we limped along with this mixed system, Medicare, Medicaid, and a private health insurance model, and about 20% uninsured. But the difference is what happened in the 70s and 80s was that prices really began to climb. Ah, uh, we started having CAT scans, yes. MRI scans, and some uh, probably perhaps maybe even the beginnings of, of genetic medicine and lots of new laboratory tests and la laboratory technologies. And, and... Oh, medications. And medications. And we had what we call a fee-for-service system, which is, at that time, there wasn't yet that much to do. But every time something got introduced, it would be just paid for. 
And all a hospital had to do, all a doctor had to do was to write for a medication, to see a patient, to do a procedure, and they would get reimbursed. There was not a lot of questioning. Oh, that was my impression of what the healthcare system was like, and it, it actually inspired me to think about maybe going to medical school and becoming a doctor <laughs> and having incredible power that way. Well, uh, I, I like to say that in the 1980s, money was falling from the sky. Uh, if you were a hospital, if, if you couldn't make money in the 1980s and you ran a hospital, something was seriously wrong because Medicare would p just pay for every single thing that you build for, every, every IV, every Band-Aid. You just had to bill it, and you would get it. And so prices started really climbing, uh, some you know, out of uh, proportion to what they should have, but even just the system of being able to bill and without questions asked, get paid. We really started to see healthcare costs climb. Wow. All right. Well, that, that, that gives us a bit of an overview. I think we can uh, uh, hold off here for a little bit and, and ponder that and think about where it's brought us to today. Thanks, Evan. Okay, Bill, we are back here, and uh, I know we wanted to continue some conversations, uh, and you had a topic you wanted to uh, bring up with me. Well, yeah, well, last week I ran into an old friend, hadn't seen in a long time, and mentioned that we were doing this radio show talking about healthcare issues, and she said, well, I, I, I've got a healthcare issue, and um, it's a little complex, but, but she was telling me that, that she's getting ready to uh, retire and go on Medicare. And uh, and she had a, a medication concern. She's she's uh, had she uses uh, an estrogen ring. Uh, a number of years ago, she was having a lot of recurrent urinary tract infections, postmenopausal. Tried a variety of different hormone replacement treatments, and finally came onto this uh, vaginal estrogen ring that gets inserted by a gynecologist, and it worked great for her. She'd been having recurrent urinary tract infections. It was really adversely affecting her, and since she had the ring put in, uh, no more urinary tract infections, doing great. Uh, every three months she has to go and get it replaced and her health insurance covers the physician cost for that visit to, to have the ring replaced. Her insurance does not cover the, the estrogen ring. It's not a formulary medication. The, when, when she was on 
uh, oral hormones that was covered when she was on vaginal suppositories that was covered, but they didn't work. And the ring works, it's not covered. It costs about $550 for, wow. for a ring. Uh, it lasts for three months, so that's a couple thousand dollars, a little more per year. And she's just been paying that for several years. Uh, and I think being employed, that was fine, but she's looking at, well, now I'm retiring, fixed income, and, I, and I've got to pick uh, a Medicare plan. And there are lots of different Medicare plans out there, so she starts looking at them, and it's very complex. And she, she found that, that in order to get a plan that would actually cover this medication, she was going to have to pay a lot more, and she's trying to figure out the cost. Well, which plan should I go on? And, and she said, you know, this is the only medication I take. It's really my only health care cost. Maybe I should go with a cheaper plan, but then if something else comes up, you know, what, what happens with that? And, um, and the other thing that comes into play here and I actually did a little look around this about about you know why is this 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 estrogen ring why is it so expensive? Because it really costs about uh, I think I think probably ten times more than other estrogen replacements, and it and it has to do with the patent for it. Um, and you know she's going to be making this decision, but we don't know what's going to happen with the price of this medication because th these things change over time so much. So, so she could make a decision to get a, a health plan that will cover this medication. And then the next thing she knows, it could be that, that suddenly a generic comes out of this and, and the price comes way down. Yeah, this is an amazing situation, Bill. Thank you for bringing this up. And, and it really shows, first of all, the complexity you know, of our health system and our insurance system. Um, you know, first of all, big picture, <clears throat> why are pharmaceuticals so expensive in the United States? That's a you know, we could we'll do a whole show show on that one. Um, but you know, one big reason is in the United States, uh, we've the insurance companies and Medicare in particular has not been allowed to negotiate uh, prices with pharmaceutical companies. <clears throat> in fact, it wasn't until the Affordable Care Act did we even begin to say we should start negotiating on prices. And I think this year is the first time there's 10 medicines which have been chosen uh, so that Medicare can actually negotiate. Other than that, we have all been just victims of the pricing coming out of the pharmaceutical companies uh, and charging whatever they wanted. If they felt that their drug was uh, effective and they had a patent on it, no one else could make it, they could charge a lot of money. Um, and so we have this issue that we, in the United States in particular, the prices for pharmaceuticals are exceedingly high. Now, the pharmaceutical companies tell us, well, it's very expensive to develop these uh, drugs. Our R&D is expensive. Uh, and it's true. All that is true. Uh, and yet uh, their profits continue to soar. And every other industrialized country actually negotiates with pharmaceutical companies uh, and w or will select not to uh, have some of these medicines on the formulary. So I'm glad that she can get this here. That's a good thing. You know, that's but uh, it's very expensive. And well, now the second thing is all about this. How do you choose a, a plan like Medicare D? Well, before before we get into that, I, I guess I, I would just also say the other um, the other aspect of this that, that that is interesting for me, and I don't really know the answer to this, but but um, as a physician who's worked in this system, there is generally criteria that an insurance company will have for when a medication that's not on formulary may or may not be covered. Um, this 
is something that when I was working at a community health center and dealing with multiple different insurance entities was impossible to navigate. Uh, you know, I used to do it for cholesterol medications and, you know, make an appeal for somebody to be on a particular medication or, or, or another. And it, it was so hard to figure out who's the person at this insurance company that I have to contact and what are the criteria and they'd be different from one insurance entity to another. And, and I would never be dealing with the same, with, with the same entity. When, when I switched and started working at the VA about 15 years ago, they have a formulary as well and they have, there are non-formulary medications, and there's a single appeal process to, to ask for a, uh, for a non-formulary medication in a particular situation. And, and, and usually with that, this is done, it's done on a local basis, so that usually I'm dealing with the same person or the same few people who I'm appealing to. I have a relationship with them, and I can say, you know, this, uh, you know in this particular situation, in that system, I don't know exactly if I could have gotten this medication for her, but I could say, you know what? She's tried A, B, C, and D different treatments, kept having urinary tract infections. This one works. And, and, and most likely that, that, you know, that, that could be approved. And, and it, it may very well be that with her current insurance plan, there might be a process like that, but her physician is busy and right. doesn't, know, doesn't know the system, That's doesn't right. know how to figure it out, and so probably never embarked on that process to see if there's a way to get the insurance company to, to, uh, to, to cover the medication. Yeah, and so you, then you have this, this really frustrating situation where you've got this patient who has a, a, a known problem and a known solution, and you've got essentially an insurance uh, company uh, practicing medicine. Uh, and the physician who wants to advocate for the patient is in, can't do this for all the hundreds of patients that the f physician is following, uh, right. and would create this system that is just no one is winning. Right. But the the irony is is that one your one bad urinary tract infection that lands her in the hospital will cost the insurance company more than years of paying for the for the medication. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So you know, I think we have we've got problems with pricing we've got problems with complexity uh this whole you know issue of getting physician uh, a prior authorization you know to get a medication or a diagnostic test done i think bill we're going to have a lot to talk about as we go forward uh in our in our show here uh, of how do we how do we help navigate these issues coming out of the pharmaceutical and the insurance industry very challenging i think for now it's just warm me out. I think we should take a break. <laughs> it was a great story, though. Thanks so much, Bill. We're back. You're listening to Care Talk with Quick and Quack. My name is Bill. I'm here with Evan. And uh, Evan, we've heard a little bit about your history in healthcare. Uh, you started off early in your career doing, doing, uh, traveling to various places. You worked, did some work in Tanzania and some work in Haiti, and uh, you were quite a while on the Zuni uh, Indian Reservation. Uh, and you had filled us in a little bit about how you had this experience of not just providing healthcare, but but noticing 
uh, how that uh, healthcare fit into the community where you were working and how the system of healthcare had a real influence on, on what was happening with, with people's health. And, uh, and then you sort of emerged back into Western medicine in many ways, or, or, or the U.S. healthcare system, I guess, in, here in Massachusetts. Um, and, uh, uh, but it had piqued your interest in this idea of healthcare systems. So give us, give us a little more information. Give us a few minutes about, about uh, what happened next in your career. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I, I, I think those experiences you mentioned were, were really formative for me um, because I was you know, trained as a physician uh, to take care of patients the, the best I could with the knowledge I had. And yet I realized more than anything my effectiveness was really dependent on not only my own knowledge and the ability to care for patients, <clears throat> but it was dependent on the system that I worked in. Did the system support me as a provider to be able to not only provide the care that I needed for patients who were sick, but you know, was I in a system that was allowing me to think about the population in general, to actually prevent uh, uh, medical problems from occurring, uh, having me part of a public health approach to improve uh, health uh, as well as, as focusing on improving health care. And so I moved here to Western Massachusetts um, and I was uh, fortunate to get a, a position teaching uh, at uh, Bay State Medical Center. I was the assistant director of the medicine residency program and it was a role where I could uh, teach residents uh, see patients on my own, and I started seeing patients uh, at Mason Squ Square Community Health Center uh, in Mason Square in Springfield, um, and also have some time to be able to do my own research. And my research really became uh, the continuation of this idea of uh, how do we improve health systems. Uh, I began thinking about uh, to improve systems, you first need to uh, have honest and open conversations about the system that you're working in. You need to have data <clears throat> on that system and then share that data with individuals to say, look, this is what we're doing well and this is what we're not doing well. It was kind of uh, heretical, actually, at the time. Really? So so how, you know, I'm sort of, I think we both had started off around the same time and, and um, uh, how do you, um, uh, how, how did it work out that you were able to start uh, doing some research, collecting data. I'm also curious what sort what sort of data you start you started uh, you started collecting. So um. so we started looking at performance. How well were doctors uh, managing their patients? And I was interested in diabetes care. So we focused first on the whole system of diabetes. Who is? How do we know who has diabetes? Who's sick? who's out there that we need to manage, uh, and how well were we doing actually managing those patients? So, so just to interrupt here, so, so this is something that happens a lot now these days in the, in the 2020s, but we're talking about the, the 1990s here? Uh, yeah, very, very early, uh, 1994 when I first started. Uh, so it was well before the, the, the movements that we are comfortable with uh, today. Uh, and I was a little bit of a... Uh, a, a daredevil, if you will. Uh, people didn't know what to think of this this young doctor who was 
coming and talking about systems and talking about uh, measurement of, of care and measurement of prevention. Um, and it was a little bit of uh, swimming upstream. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, right, so, so, so the time you spent doing that was time you were not spending uh, seeing patients and uh, uh, generating, uh, generating income for the practice, I guess. And uh, so I, I can imagine there'd be some challenges with that. It, it was. It was. But I was fortunate because actually in those early 90s at Bay State, <clears throat> there was a, a very forward-thinking uh, CEO of the health system. Uh, and so, this is uh, Mike Daly. Yeah. Um, Mike was really the, so he was the one who really sort of put together Bay State Health, by the way. You know, put together the insurance model with Health New England. He tried to merge the hospitals together. He built the practice plan. Um, and he had heard some of the work I was doing. And he actually called me up one day and said, you know, Evan, I don't quite understand all the systems approach, but, you know, from what I've read, this is going to be really important to the future of healthcare. I think this is going to be, you know, our reputation is going to be dependent on transparency and on quality. He said, I actually think it's going to be how we're paid in the future. So would you like to form an academic uh, quality improvement department, as we called it, to tell us what to measure um, and what's important and then how to how do we actually improve? Now, at that time, healthcare wasn't really doing much in industrial quality improvement. It was done outside. Other industries had really mastered quality improvement. You know, people like uh, Deming and Duran had done this work in other industries. But healthcare was, you know, 20 years behind the times. And Mike said to me, you know, a lot has been done out there. Can you, can you help us create a modern quality improvement program and, and measurement approach? So, so were there some? So, so this is a, um, you know, I, I love the idea of, of of measuring quality, trying to improve quality, um, and yet I have to also have to say that that as a practitioner, I've at times been a, a bit of a skeptic sometimes, of sort of saying that that once you start selecting what you're going to measure, that um, that 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 it can affect. Um, what um, well let me, let me see if I let me start this again I'm sorry because if you um, you can you can measure you can you can measure something to sort of say like how good is the care that's being provided here by looking at certain quality measures and uh, and then once you select a measure to say okay now we're going to evaluate care based on that I wonder if if then uh, you sort of start getting an effect of sort of teachers teaching to the test. Yes, of, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I know where you're going, Bill. All right. So, so help help me make it yeah. clear. Help me yeah. make it clear. Well, so what happens is, if in fact physicians see uh, only certain things are being measured, they will focus and work in, on improvement of those areas, and perhaps will avoid trying to uh, take care of other. You know areas that could be very clinically meaningful because they know they're only being evaluated on these certain areas that are measured, and that is a fair criticism, I think, of the quality improvement field. Um, so, so what were the first what were the first quality measures that you started looking at? Well, we were doing a couple things. We we were looking at first of all big the big systems. So, diabetes, of course, was uh, an early. Uh, almost poster child of quality improvement because huge were, driver of healthcare costs. 
big driver of costs, many people affected. And there was also a lot of evidence that had emerged that if we had certain preventive uh, measures in place, you know, the screening it, for complications. So, so it basically, it, it, the, the complications of diabetes are, are what become really quite expensive, and the evidence was showing that if you, con if you control diabetes better, if you give better diabetes care, then you prevent some of those complications and presumably have people be healthier and ha spend less money on healthcare. That's right. So in, uh, the unfortunate um, situation at the time, though, was that most physicians really didn't know all their patients in their practice who had diabetes. It was very difficult. They didn't have the data to say, I, you know, I care for a thousand patients. A hundred of them have diabetes. Of those hundred, how many are doing great and, you know, just are on their own? I can see them every three months. Uh, how many are really sick and I need to actually, you know, understand what's happening and help them uh, with some education and perhaps um, make sure we're on top of them, have a nurse call them. So there was sure. just so a so lack was, of data. Yeah, so I mean, I was doing primary care at that same time and not working in your system there. And I would, you know, for me, I, I would have patients with diabetes and I would just see them one at a time. Well, here comes the patient with diabetes and, uh, and, and, and she's doing quite well. Her diabetes is well controlled. Give her a pat on the back, keep up the good work. And here comes another patient with diabetes. He's not doing so great. His, exactly. his diabetes is poorly controlled. So, so it's all one patient at a time. I think, Bill, you have, you have explained the difference between, you know, good doctoring one-on-one -on -one versus good systems, just in, your, in that description. That's exactly what it was. And I was trying to create the awareness among my colleagues that ultimately it's good systems that we need to, to support having you know great healthcare delivery. Well, that's a good introduction to what, you're, what you were doing with your career. I think that it's uh, time to take a little break and uh, thank you.
that was the Beatles with Dr. Robert. We're back here with Care Talk with Quick and Quack, and uh, we're following up on our uh, getting to know one another conversations. Uh, and Bill, I'd like to continue our conversation. Um, we we started. You told us a little bit about your uh, kind of circuitous route of making a decision of uh, going to medical school and and how that happened. Um, and uh, how you, a little bit of a bent arrow, uh, trying to figure out uh, what you, what other things you could do until you really made the decision that uh, healthcare was was going to be right for you. You uh, began your your thinking about a specialty, uh, and do, during your medical school and and then residency, uh, I think you know you were a little bit ahead of the the game. I would say, Bill, you you saw the the big picture of. Of healthcare delivery, you saw some of the the, the care that was going on, uh, and you realized that being a specialist working in you know in an ICU wasn't for you. Uh, you had a much more holistic view of uh, people and of, of of healthcare, and you finished residency and you started a career in, in primary care. And uh, let's pick it up there. And I'd love to hear about what it was like as you started your career um, and uh, what were some of your, your guiding principles? All right, well, uh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. So I'll, I'll say one, one of the things that was uh, uh, that, that guided me was towards the end of my residency, I, I really I wasn't sure where I was going to go in practice after that, and there were several different possibilities, but I, I was pretty sure I was going to be working in primary care. Um, and, um, and one day I was in the corridor at the hospital, and I overheard some of the attending physicians, you know, the fully trained physicians who were in practice, and they were sort of saying, oh, that, that conference was incredible. That was, that was the most educational conference I ever heard. And I was kind of curious because I, I, I would go to most of the educational conferences, and I was wondering what it was. Well, it turned out that the conference they had gone to was on, on billing and how to properly bill and charge for your visits. And, uh, wow. and, and I just realized they were all in private practice, and I just thought, like, I have no head for business, and... And that was not what interested me. And, and I sort of decided I'm going to get myself into a situation where I can just go. I don't have to worry about the business. I can just practice medicine and, and, and be on salary. And I, I went to work at a, at a rural community health center um, and, um, and, and did primary care there for a number of years. And, uh, uh, and so doing primary care in, in that setting, well, actually, it was, it was an interesting thing of what happened with the the business of that of that community health center because when I first came there, um, we had a federal grant to provide free care for people who didn't have health insurance. This was 1993 when I started there, and um, and that was a big chunk of our practice. We had uh, 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 people who had no health insurance, and, and the federal government would would reimburse us some. and And our administration was set up to uh, every couple of years they had to send in the, the paperwork for the federal grant to keep that going and they were very good at that and, 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 and that was sort of how our administration was set up was to deal with getting this federal grant. Mm -hmm. um, we had a number of practitioners coming in and, and it turns out we were providing pretty good health care there and, and the practice started growing and people with health insurance, we were in a rural location, there weren't other doctors around there uh, but people who had health insurance in that location started saying, geez, you know, I don't necessarily need to go all the way into town to, to get my health care. I can come here and health care is pretty good. So we started getting patients who had health insurance 
and which was great for the health center because the reimbursement was a little bit better and they started bringing money in. Then as we got later into the 1990s, into the 2000s, my impression, and you know, you understanding the systems of healthcare may have a better insight into this, but it seemed like the insurance companies were sort of putting a lot more kind of restrictions and measurements uh, on, on, on what we were doing and, and uh, you know, starting to say, well, you know, you can't just prescribe this medication. You've got to prescribe this other brand of cholesterol medication. Uh, and, yes. um, and, and we had, I, I think that a lot of practices had administrations that would deal with the insurance companies and try to protect their healthcare providers a little bit from from the ravages of, of, of that healthcare system. And I sort of felt like, well, our, our administration is very good at dealing with this federal grant to allow us to continue to provide care for people without health insurance, which was great, but not so great at dealing with the insurance companies. And, um, and it, it, it made for quite a bit of hassle. Uh, um, you know, I can sort of give an example of, I, I, I remember actually this one particular patient came in and he was on a cholesterol medication, and cholesterol medications were pretty expensive at the time. And he was on one brand of cholesterol medication, and he said, well, I changed jobs. My health insurance changed. I need to be, you know, the, 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 suddenly this, 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 this medication isn't covered, but if you, if you prescribe this one for me, it'll be, be covered. I said, no problem. They're, they're equivalent. We'll just switch you to the other medication. Um, and then six months later, he comes back and says, well, uh, it's a new year, and and my my uh, my company just changed health insurance plans, and now I need to be on the other cholesterol medication, and I switch them back, and and this was happening over and over again of just getting paperwork from from the insurance companies, and um, so it's so frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating, and it, I just felt like I spent so much of my time dealing with these things, and and. I think this is this is some of the big issues of burnout that we're seeing and and why it's been challenging to recruit doctors to become primary care physicians because you know they're the the third parties our employer based insurance system creates so many uh, obstacles and barriers to just practice good medicine that's what you wanted to do but, but Bill, talk a little bit about what was, you know, what was that if you didn't have these barriers, right? Because those are the challenges that we, we still have to cope with. What, why, why did you go to a community health center? What were you hoping for that was going to be the type of practice that you wanted to, to work in? Yeah, I think, well, I, I wanted to, to be in a place where I was um, able to... Uh, well, I guess the thing that I loved about about practicing medicine was was communicating with patients and and uh, um, and really uh, being one on one with the patient. I, I remember one of the keys for my training. I was working with a family practitioner who uh, uh, in in his practice as part of my training as a resident, and um, and he said, you know, at at the end of this rotation, I'm supposed to to to, to rate you and say how well you did. And he said. The truth is, is that I can't do that because because the key part of this training is when you go into a room with a patient and you close the door, are you able to gain that person's trust? Because if you can gain that person's trust, then you can help that person and and uh, help them to heal, help them to take care of themselves. Um, if you can't gain that person's trust, 
you're going to be greatly impeded in being able to do that. And he said, that's not something that I can see. He said, I can get a sense of whether I've gained that person's trust, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I can I can rate that for you. And I think that that really had an impact on me. That that was what I felt like my job was was to to gain somebody's trust, to be able to understand what was happening with them, and uh, and 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 to offer guidance and how to take care of themselves. That 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 there's only there's only so much that we can do in medicine. We tend to have very high uh, opinions of, of how much we impact health, but to a large extent, uh, people have a lot of uh, influence themselves over over yeah. what their health that, is. That's really powerful, Bill. It's really powerful to think about that as a, you know, as what you wanted to do, and really what is necessary to have a good doctor-patient relationship, to have good communication, to have that trust, so that when you are making those small or large decisions. You feel like you're you're doing it together with your patients. That, that's really really powerful. And it, then it's at the same token, it's really sad to hear the frustrations that you experience as a primary care doctor uh, because if the outside influences that were not allowing you to keep to those 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 roots of what you wanted. Yeah. Well. You know, maybe the, the the next time that we come back and uh, talk about this, we I can uh, tell you about the the next phase of my career that came after that, where I was working in a slightly different system and uh, what happened with that. Yeah, you moving from a community health center to the VA. Uh, it would be great to talk about that. So uh, thanks, Bill, and we'll uh, take a quick break here. One, two, three. One, two, three.
Well, that was the Young Rascals with Good Lovin'. Bill and I uh, are really proud of the selection of songs we've put together. We've curated a list of songs that reference loosely physicians, health, and healthcare. Uh, but we'd love to hear your suggestions on any other music to add to our repertoire here. Uh, you can email us at caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. We're really excited. This is uh, a show we're trying to combine talks about health, the health system, uh, and bringing you a little entertainment as along the way. Yeah, we'll remind our listener out there that you're listening to WXOJLP Northampton. We broadcast at 103.3 FM if you're close to the Northampton area. If not, you can stream us at uh, valleyfreeradio.org. Um, and there's a lot of other great programming on Valley Free Radio. Uh, one of my favorite shows that I hear from time to time is on Tuesdays uh, from 4 to 5 p.m., Madness Radio. It's a really sort of unorthodox take on some of the mental health care that, uh, that happens in this country. So if you're interested in uh, mental health care in, in particular and want to hear a rather unorthodox uh, view of some of the things that are that have gone on and in various viewpoints about about our mental health care system, you might want to check out Madness Radio, 4 to 5 p.m. on WXLJLP. And also we'd like to uh, plug uh, some other things going on in the area. Here in Western Mass, uh, there's the Secret Planet, which is a series of incredible music. Uh, this was a series that was set up uh, a lot like the Jazz Shares program, where you buy uh, prepaid uh, tickets at the beginning of the season, and you can attend the shows uh, throughout the year. It's a nice way to support music, uh, a lot like our uh, the community-supported agriculture. This is community-supported music. And uh, throughout the year, Secret Planet hosts some great music. There's some coming up uh, shortly. There's going to be uh, on November 4th, BCUC, which is an Afro-psychedelic uh, band playing at Bombix. And then on November 12th, El Cat, which is a Yemenite street funk band playing at the Parlor Room. Okay, so we've been having uh, great fun here talking about health care on, on Care Talk. And uh, we will be back again next week. Uh, we, you can hear us on 103.3 and on Friday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. And uh, we'd love to have you join the conversation. You can reach us by, by email again at caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. We'll look forward to hearing from you. Just remember, he's quack and I'm quick. <laughs> As you may have surmised by now, this is not National Public Radio. We know you have lots of choices of how to spend your time. Well, thanks for wasting your time listening to Care Talk. This show would not be possible without the stellar support of our malpractice attorney, Heidi Evidence, our chief urology consultant, Dr. Lee King, our chief diagnostician, Dr. Hano Idear. Our Director of Telephonic Complaints, Don Enser. Our Gastroenterology Consultant, Isabel E. Tender. Our Director of Efficiency, Artie Dunn. Or, and our Surgery Consultant, Dr. Anita Cutt. And finally, our Chief Audio Engineer, Don Ho, What to Do. See you next week. Mm-hmm.